So first of all, why this subject? In different ways, I've been thinking about and working on the distribution of power at work for nearly 25 years. Um, and I've circled around this particular project longer than I really want to own up to. Although I can see now that it just took time reading, thinking, listening, dare I say it, teaching for the precise questions that I think need to be asked and the design for answering them to become clear. I'm deeply grateful for the possibility I've had within the Academy in the UK to take that time and to my academic and labour law posses, you know who you are, um, and in particular to the environment at Queen Mary Law Department, which have helped me immeasurably. There's also something wonderfully reassuring about an institution in which an event can be celebrated five years after it happened, pretty much. Although I've got a slight anxiety that um, maybe QM is still allowed to decide not to inaugurate me. <laughs> so my interest specifically in workplace conduct was triggered, in fact, by starting my career at the sharp end of some pretty intense interpersonal battles at work and by seeing the dramatically deleterious impact these could have for everyone and way beyond the particular protagonist certainly taking in the organization and its pursuit of its aims as well. I have to admit I didn't have as polite a name for it as behavioral conflict in those days. So this is perhaps a good place to illustrate what I mean by this phrase, the sorts of situations I'm talking about, the different ways, many different ways, the law regulates them, and along the way, why I needed to find this neutral language to talk about, you, about them. So what I'm going to do is give you a thumbnail sketch of key facts in several of the 150 cases from 1995 to 2010 that I've spent hours, days, weeks, qualitatively analysing. But these give you a vignette of the sorts of situations that came up, come up. So Jones and Tower Boot Company Limited is a very famous case for lawyers uh, from 1996. It's famous legally because it extended the ambit of employer liability for unlawful discrimination and the reasoning in fact went on to influence extending that um, bit more generally outside the field of unlawful discrimination so that is one of the areas that absolutely regulates behavioral conflict at work what happened in this instance was truly horrifying and the awfulness of the facts in fact played their part in the court of appeal deciding the employer net had of responsibility had to be spread widely. So Lord Justice Waite described the facts as follows. In April 1992, 92, a 16-year-old boy started work at the employer's shoe factory as a last operative. He was ethnic minor, mixed ethnic minority parentage and uh, joined a workforce which had not previously employed anyone of ethnic minority origin. 
From the outset, he was subjected by fellow employees to harassment of the gravest kind. He was called by racially offensive names. A notice was stuck on his back with one of these names. Two employees whipped him on the legs with a piece of welt and threw metal bolts at his head. One of them burnt his arm with a hot screwdriver. Later, the same two seized his arm and tried to put it in a lasting machine, wounding it again. Unable to endure this treatment, this 16-year-old boy left the job after four weeks. But in case you think these horrendous cases only happen with someone who, for one reason or another, vulnerable were maybe by their youth, as in that instance and other associated circumstances. Long and Mercury Communications is another example, this time someone recovering damages in tort law, so damages for personal injury on the basis that his, his employer had negligently failed to look after him. So entirely different area of law, again regulating behavioral conflict. This uh, was a long history of someone who was said uh, before this happened to be a man of very high caliber, obviously very hardworking, ambitious, and extremely successful. After a two-year process, some of which was a vendetta by a senior manager, uh, the rest was just compounded over time by the reaction of other managers, he was described as a broken man. Um, and there's a particularly sad, pathetic account of his last days in this workplace where uh, there's a redundancy procedure going on. He's told maybe they will find him a job at vaguely his level and then brought in and told, no, that's not going to happen. And he talks about just suffering at that moment a physical and mental breakdown and left, being left with this feeling of complete exhaustion. He'd been completely humiliated by the way he'd been treated. He's then told to come to a selection exercise for supervisors where he previously had been pointed at many rungs above supervisors. He goes to the selection exercise and fails and is made redundant. So that's the end of his time with them and he is left this broken man. Vikens and Keir Islington is a rather uh, typical example of much less serious instances. This time it's a successful claim under a wholly different area of law, the Protection from Harassment Act of 1997. The events seem petty, almost childish, almost something out of a uh, out of a school playground, um, but the consequences again for the claimant, Miss Beacons, were pretty serious in that she had to leave her, she became ill and had to leave work as a result. Here we have a manager who just apparently didn't like her. An initial dispute about a wages pro uh, problem, then constant, uh, she felt. Uh, being picked on, being singled out uh, compared with other employers, being required to sign in and sign out on a special timesheet, having it suddenly being decided she can't be picked up from work the way it had always been arranged, and at one point being told to F off 
by her manager, although apparently that was not so unusual in that workplace, that kind of language. And finally, this is a little picture which I never even occurred to me as something that would happen to work, where, where someone, a manager, receives a letter of complaint and takes it and tears it up in front of the person voicing their complaint, which happened here. So in this instance, a successful claim under the Protection from Harassment Act. Uh, another case that is uh, in a completely, in a sense, different, uh, of a different type is Cheltenham Borough Council and Laird, again dealing with a very senior employee, the managing director of the council. And uh, this really is an extraordinary piece of litigation. Um, the, as you'll notice from the title, it's in fact the council suing their ex-managing director. It all started with a conflict between this managing director and uh, the leader of the council and several other officers in the council and just turned into a massive conflagration which went on for a very long time leading to someone thinking it was a good idea for Chelsea Barry Council to sue their employee to recover the a million pounds which they said they'd had to spend on uh, complaints, inquiries, because of all the conflict blown up in this workplace where, of course, she counterclaimed under the protection from harassment that various things. There were all sorts of proceedings going on, all sorts of places, immense amounts of money being sent. The specific proceedings are looking at absolutely unsuccessful. And I will come back uh, to that. But again, at the base of it, this litigation all around a set of behavioral conflicts and allegations about them. So that gives you, I hope, a sense of some of the range of situations that you encounter and the very many different ways legally these can be regulated. And I haven't said anything about constructive unfair dismissal, which is one, another area which will be very important, contract, another area.